Today we are concluding our our summer-long sermon series that we've been in. It's been uh, 14 weeks that we've spent uh, looking at these different uh, biblical themes that that first appear in uh, in Genesis 1 through 3. And and kind of as I was just this past week uh, reflecting on the series as a whole, uh, just... I would say one of my big takeaways uh, from this series is that God is indeed sovereign over all. And it's not that I didn't know that before or, or doubted that before, but, uh, but just in seeing how topics are, are introduced in those first few chapters through God's work in history and, and then those things being recorded in the Bible and how God continues to work uh, moving past those first chapters in Genesis. It, ju- it just, it gives me a new appreciation for really the overarching purposes that God is, is accomplishing in this world. Uh, the things that are recorded in Genesis 1 through 3, they're, they're not done so haphazardly. I mean, everything that is there is there for a reason. It's, it's providing a foundation from which God would continue to work out his grand plan of salvation. And, and so, and I'd say our, our last topic for today is, uh, is definitely no exception to that. Um, but before we get into today's topic specifically, I, I came across a paragraph from Psychology Today this article written by Steve Taylor that I wanted to share with you. Um, This article is about the differences in shopping habits between men and women. I just found it kind of humorous and a little intriguing as well. So so here it is. He writes in his article, um, a survey of 2,000 British people conducted in 2013 found that men became bored after only 26 minutes of shopping. Maybe that's a little generous. I don't know. Uh, but uh, 26 minutes, while it took women a full two hours. The survey found that 80% of men didn't like shopping with their partners and that 45% avoided doing so at all costs. (laughs) Almost half of all spousal shopping trips ended in arguments, with men becoming frustrated because they bought what they needed straight away while their partners were still looking and taking too long to make decisions. And none of us can relate to that in any way, I'm sure. That's what the laughter was about, right? Um, and, and what intrigues me is that, so, so Taylor goes on in this article, and he, he, he tries to link this enjoyment of shopping back to early, the early ages of mankind, when people were hunter-gatherers. So he would say that, that it was customarily the, the men's role to hunt animals, and the women's role to gather plants and, and nuts and fruits and vegetables and things like that. And so apparently, according to this article and, and his conclusions, my struggle with shopping trips can be blamed on some instinctive prehistoric urge within me that I'd rather be hunting some kind of beast than gather, searching and gathering. So I guess the next time I'm becoming impatient on a trip with Megan, I've got my excuse ready to go. There's just nothing I can do about it. It's just, it goes back to that those ancient urges. Well, you know, the reason I bring that up is, uh, men, I hope, you'll, uh, I hope you'll bear with me this morning. If you've got these ancient hunter urges inside of you, we're going to compare two outfits this morning. 
Um, so you're just, just going to have to bear with me as we go through this. But, but believe it or not, there's two outfits given to us in Genesis chapter 3. And we're going to start by looking at the two and comparing the two. So, so I'll just start us off by reading where these two are found. It's in Genesis chapter 3, and so I'd encourage you to, to turn there with me. The first outfit is found in verse 7 of Genesis 3. And it says, and this is right after Adam and Eve ate of the, the fruit. It says, then the, Eve, then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So outfit number one. Then if you look in verse 21, we find the second one. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Now, now the reason we're going to spend time comparing these two outfits is because doing so, will, I think, will actually reveal quite a bit about the nature of sin and, and, and what is going to be required to fix the problem that, that Adam and Eve have gotten themselves into and, and of course, all of creation into. So, so the first thing that I think we need to notice is that both of these outfits are created in response to sin. The first outfit, of course, made by Adam and Eve. The second, made by God himself. Now, prior to sin, there was no need. No need for clothing. There was nothing that needed to be covered. After the first sin, that all changed, as we see. Adam and Eve were no longer perfect, sinless people like they were before that. They were now flawed, sinful people. And their response was to try to, to cover and to hide their flawed, sinful selves. So what we see in verse 7 is they kind of take a crack at it by making a loincloth for themselves. Now, now without knowing the exact details of what those loincloths looked like, uh, we can know that it was a type of clothing that didn't really offer much coverage. So, so on, the, on the body coverage scale between Speedo and Tuxedo, it's more Speedo. I mean, it just is, right? It's, it's just not going to cover much. And, and, and it really is significant, right? And the significance comes when we think about verse 21, when we see that what God made for them, uh, it's usually translated as either garments or clothing. The Hebrew word refers to something like a long cloak a long coat or a tunic of some kind. So, so on that same scale, speedo to tuxedo, it's much closer to tuxedo. It co there's much greater body coverage in that garment of clothing. And I really think there's spiritual implications to that. I mean, I, if we think about that, Adam and Eve sinned. They sought to cover their sin, and the best that they could come up with was a loincloth very inadequate, right? God intervenes and provides something much more effective, a tunic, a long clothing, article of clothing. And, you know, we're going to see how this leads us all to Jesus, but for right now, it is enough to know that in Genesis chapter 3, we see that mankind's attempts to cover sin are inadequate. They're inadequate, and, and this is perhaps a good time for us to reflect upon ourselves. You know, in what ways might we be attempting to cover 
our sin under our own efforts. How much time and energy in my life goes towards seeking to fix the results of sin or keeping the results of my sin hidden? And am I much more successful than Adam and Eve were in making their loincloths? Probably not, right? Or from another perspective, in what ways might we be attempting to cover the sin of others under our own efforts? Parents especially, how much of our time and energy goes towards seeking to fix our children's sin nature, or at least minimizing the results of their sin nature? And are we much more successful than Adam and Eve were when they created their clothing to try and cover their sin? What I need, what we all truly need, is for God to intervene, as he did toward the end of Genesis chapter 3. Only he is going to be able to adequately address the sin problem within us. And, and we're going to see this continue to be developed as we go this morning. But already in chapter 3, we see it. Mankind, Adam and Eve, they're just inadequate in what they do in response to sin. God, on the other hand, is much better and is adequate. But it's not just the style of clothing that is significant in this. The material that is used in each set of clothing has significance as well. So looking back at verse 7, Adam and Eve utilized fig leaves in creating their loincloths. If you think about fig leaves, that's something that didn't require a whole lot of sacrifice on the part of the fig tree, right? Pull some leaves off. Those leaves are eventually going to replace to be replaced by other healthy leaves. Cut off a whole branch if you want. The, the, the tree will probably be fine. I don't think the tree shouted out in pain when the fig leaves were taken from it. It seems like Adam and Eve thought that something pretty insignificant would be sufficient to cover their sin. And you can probably see where I'm going with this, right? Because when we look at verse 21, God, when making the garments when making the tunics. He made them from skins, and the clear indication here is that the skins came from an animal that first had to be killed, and the sacrifice of that animal was obviously much greater than that of the fig tree, wasn't it? I mean, the animal gave its life. The, the sacrifice of the, of the fig tree was insignificant. The sacrifice of the animal was highly significant. You know, mankind thought that a few tree leaves could cover their sin. What God was showing is that it's going to take something much, much greater than that. Sacrifice of a life was needed in order to address the sin problem. And again, you know, as we reflect, I think another good question to ask is, how significant do we consider our sinfulness to be? Do we think that fig leaves will be enough to to address our sin, to cover our sin, or, or do we rightly recognize that something much greater is required, the, the sacrifice of life itself? I mean, we see that all the, for the very first time just in Genesis chapter 3, just in these two different outfits, two different attempts that were made to address sin. 
Um, men, you can breathe a little bit easier now. We're done with the clothes, and we're going to move on. But, but we do need to continue to trace this topic of sacrifice through the Bible. What started as a single animal sacrifice in Genesis chapter 3 was later systematized in the book of Leviticus, and it was implemented for an entire nation of people. And so the book of Leviticus opens with chapter after chapter of detail regarding the specific protocols that God's people were to follow as they offered animal sacrifices due to their sinfulness. And, and what we see throughout the Old Testament, but, but especially in Leviticus, is that those animal sacrifices were performed for the same reason that we, we saw in Genesis chapter 3. It was to cover the sins of God's people. And, and the, the fancy Hebrew word used throughout the Old Testament is kafar, which means to cover. Uh, the fancy English word that we'll use for translation is atonement, that it's a covering of sins. And, and that word appears 49 times in Leviticus alone. And so it's clear that the animal sacrifices were done in order to cover, to, to provide atonement for the sins of the people. And, and I would say... Leviticus 17.11 is, is where we find the theme verse for all of Leviticus and, and perhaps the theme verse for the entire sacrificial system. Leviticus 17 verse 11 says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. The, this picture of atonement within the sacrificial system went to new depths that, that was not seen in the Garden of Eden. Uh, in Genesis, it was the skin of the animals that, that covered Adam and Eve. In Leviticus, what, what we're told, what we see is that it's the blood of those animals which provides the atonement. It was the blood of the sacrifice that covered over the people's sins. And it was through this covering over of sins that forgiveness was found. And it's significant because there is a clear connection in Leviticus between atonement and forgiveness. Nearly every time forgiveness is mentioned in Leviticus, it is done so in the context of atonement through the blood of sacrificed animals. So once a person offered a sacrifice for their sins, once they were covered by the blood of that animal, once they found forgiveness uh, from God, their, their relationship with him, with God, could then be restored. Uh, the, the covering of sin allowed for that right relationship with God once again. And, and when you think about our English word, atonement, it captures it so well just in the spelling of the word. If you were to divide atonement up, at one meant. It captures that concept. Atonement allows for oneness again between mankind and God. And it's, it's only through sacrifice symbolized by shed blood that mankind could approach God in right relationship after they had sinned. And, and when you get to the New Testament, we get to Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews pointed this out 
in chapter 9, verse 7, when he noted that the high priest never entered God's presence in the most holy place without blood. Never entered without blood. And the, the statement could be applied to any of God's people as well. When they came to worship at the temple, it was a sacrifice that was at the center of that, the shedding of blood. They, they never approached God's presence without blood. And it isn't because God is some bloodthirsty being who needs to be appeased so that he doesn't smite us. It's because of the serious nature of sin demonstrated all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. Fig leaves or, or any other human effort aren't sufficient to cover our sins. They're not sufficient to restore a relationship with God only happens through the sacrifice of life. So it starts in Genesis chapter 3, and we see that progress through the Old Testament. Now, if the blood of those animals was able to fully cover our sins and restore our relationship with God, then we would be continuing that today. You'd be bringing a goat or a lamb to church with you, and, and that's what we would be doing in order to find that restored relationship problem was that a person could sacrifice as many animals as they wanted and pour out as, uh, as, as much literal animal blood on themselves as they wanted, but their sin still remained. It was still there. And again, the writer of Hebrews just draws this out so perfectly. Um, he says in chapter 9, verse 9, that those sacrifices cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. He says in chapter 10, verse 3, that those sacrifices are merely a reminder of sin. In chapter 10, verse 11, he says that those repeated sacrifices can never take away sins. So that system, the old covenant, the sacrificial system, it was a temporary system put in place to point God's people to what was truly needed what was needed to provide real and lasting atonement. So just like those, those two outfits in Genesis 3 taught mankind something about sin and the requirements to cover sin, so the sacrificial system kind of built on that teaching. And it looks further ahead to the culmination. And the book of Hebrews, uh, again, it, it, it's, it's, it helps us to understand so much of what the Old Testament sacrificial system pointed toward. I mean, over and over again, Hebrews points out how, how Jesus fulfills and is so much better than the many components of that old system. So, so Jesus enacts a better covenant. Jesus is the better high priest. Jesus is the better sacrifice, as we're looking at today. So I'm going to read a few verses from Hebrews chapter 10, and, and as I'm doing that, let's allow these, these words to overwhelm us when we think about Jesus' sacrifice of himself. So if you'd like to follow with me, this is Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 8. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. 
he does away with the first in order to establish the second. It's talking about covenants there. Does away with the first covenant to establish the second one. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So the clothes in Genesis chapter 3, both sets, covered over the sinful person beneath. The blood of the animal sacrifices, all the different sacrifices in the Old Covenant, they covered over the sinful person beneath. I mean, that's what atonement means, to cover. The sacrifice of Jesus, however, does something different. It doesn't just cover over our sins. It does away with sin. It takes what was stained and what was impure, and instead of covering it up, it makes it pure. And, and two times in this passage, we're told that the sacrifice of Jesus sanctifies us. Verse 10 and verse 14. It's another way to say that we've been made holy. And both sanctification and holiness, they, they speak of purity. Purity. And, and what's truly fascinating to me is that there, there is a stark contrast between the Old and New Testaments when it comes to the concept of atonement, this covering over of sin. I mean, over and over again in the Old Testament, that concept is used to refer to what takes place in God's people as the blood of sacrifices is applied to their sins, that it covers over their sins. Once you move into the New Testament, once we get to the new covenant of Jesus, the equivalent Greek word, for it to cover is, is never used, and the concept of atonement is really only used when talking about the Old Testament. So something that was so crucial to understanding the Old Testament sacrificial system practically disappears when you get to the New Testament. And I think it begs the question, why would that be? I mean, why would that come up over and over and over again in the Old Testament, and then you get to the New and it seems to disappear. And, and Bible scholars have, have asked themselves that question for a long time. Here's the response that I think has validity. Atonement nearly disappears in the New Testament because sins aren't simply covered up by the blood of Jesus. They're not simply covered up. His blood sanctifies and purifies us. And so the concept of atonement seen in the Old Testament just doesn't adequately describe what takes place through Jesus' sacrifice. And so it's almost like instead of the, the New Testament writers trying to take that word and, and redefine it and, and, and change our thinking about it, it's almost like they just leave it there and, and start using all these other words that talk about what the blood of Jesus does within his people. Words like ransom and redemption and reconciliation, and justification. In short, the sacrifice of Jesus upon the cross utterly purifies us. 
doesn't just cover us up. It purifies us. And if you notice, the, the writer of Hebrews talks about that purification, sanctification, in both a past and a present tense. He draws out both in this passage. So in, in chapter 10, uh, verse 10, he states that we have been sanctified through the sacrifice of Jesus. Past tense, we have been. There's something that happens uh, instantaneously in which we move from condemned to forgiven. We move from dead to alive. We move from separated to redeemed, from enemy to child, from sinner to holy. It, it happens in the moment. A simple garment of skin could never do that for us. All the blood from all the animal sacrifices in the world could never do that. It's, it's only the blood of Jesus poured out upon the cross that can do that within me and within any of us. And that almost sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? Those words that I was just describing. I mean, part of the challenge of being a follower of Jesus is to begin thinking about ourselves in those terms. I mean, that, that is our identity in Christ. The, the sacrifice of Jesus is such a marvelous and powerful and, and all-encompassing act that it transforms us into those things. And so uh, what I'd like for us to do uh, uh, for just a moment, we're going to put that graphic up. Patty, if you can put that up on the screen. Um, those words that I just mentioned um, are listed there, and, and there's more. <laughs> there are many more words that we could put up there about what the sacrifice of Jesus does within us. Um, but I didn't want to include so many that they just kind of all blend together and, and completely overwhelm us. And so as these words are on the screen, what, what I want us to do is just take a minute or two to silently contemplate these words, to, to allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us about our identity in Jesus. This is our identity. And, and if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, these five words are a wonderful promise. Wonderful promise that, that this is the work that Jesus can and will do within you when you give yourself to him. So as I said, let's just take a moment and just kind of sit silently and reflect on these five words that are on the screen. I think maybe the, the biggest hurdle to thinking of ourselves in those terms is the fact that we still struggle with sin in this life, right? Maybe we want to believe those things, but, but we see sin continue to pull at us, cause us to stumble. I think the writer of Hebrews speaks to that present reality in this passage as well, because he, he states in verse 14 that Jesus has perfected 
those who are being sanctified. So verse 10, he says you have been sanctified, past tense, but then he draws out the present reality in verse 14, being sanctified. So while that list of terms is accurate when talking about what Jesus does in us instantaneously, it's also accurate when talking about the work Jesus continues to do within us day by day, minute by minute, this continual process of sanctification. It's, it's ongoing until our departure from this life. Uh, we sang earlier about uh, flying away. Until we fly away, that, that process is going to continue. So everything on that list is already true of us, but everything on that list also includes things we are being sanctified into as Christ works within us. But it's all possible only because of the sacrifice of Jesus on a cross. Anything that, that we might try to do in order to solve our sin problem or create these things within us, it's nothing better than making a loincloth out of fig leaves. It's really no more effective than that. So what we need is for God to intervene. And we saw it in Genesis 3. You see it in the Old Testament, and you ultimately see it in the New Testament, in the new covenant instituted by Jesus. God has intervened by providing the perfect sacrifice. And of course, it was himself. He sacrificed himself. So when we think about communion this morning, our, our participation in communion together is a reminder of, of who Jesus is and what he's done on the cross, but this is also a, a proclamation that, that we are trusting in that sacrifice. So we remember, but we're also proclaiming something. To eat the bread and drink the juice is to say that we are ceasing from our own attempts to cover our sin. We recognize that those attempts don't suffice. So everything that was needed to cover over and do away with sin was secured on the cross. That was everything that was needed. No, uh, no more clothes made of fig leaves, no more endless animal sacrifices, no more personal attempts at covering sin. Everything that was needed is symbolized by what is right in front of us. The sacrifice of Jesus was and is enough for our sinfulness. So we rejoice in that this morning, we remember that this morning, and we also proclaim it as we participate together. Um, the elders will come forward and um, we'll do that now. Just, just a reminder uh, about communion. Uh, we do still have some prepackaged elements, um, so if you would like uh, a prepackaged one, please feel free to, uh, to take one of those. Um, uh, as we celebrate communion, we, we don't require that you be a member of our church or our specific tradition. We, we say you need to be a, a member of God's church, that you need to believe and have accepted that sacrifice of Jesus. And 
If you've not yet accepted that, but you would like to, then today's a great time to do that, and communion can be a, a, a great time to take that first step of faith in Jesus. So let's, let's do this together now, remembering who Jesus is and proclaiming the sufficiency of his sacrifice on the cross.